Thank you, Pastor Mark. It's good to be with you here this morning. I'm uh, Pastor Bill. It's good to see you. Um, For those of you that might be brand new here today at Chapel Hill, we have been doing a a one-year-long wonderful journey through the book of Romans. Last couple weeks, Pastor Mark has been preaching from Romans 9 and 10 on the doctrine of election. And today we're finishing up a little mini-series, Romans 9 through 11. We're going to be looking at Romans 11 and the nation of Israel. Paul uses a word, mystery, the word mystery to describe God's relationship with the nation of Israel. You know, life is full of mysteries, isn't it? Some of them are big, some of them are little. Um, I had a, a, a small M mystery here just a couple weeks ago. Um, I was asked over a year ago by some close friends in Southern California if I would officiate their daughter's wedding in Homer, Alaska. Now, what made it unusual is that it was uh, in, uh, in March, March 10th, and it was in the winter, um, and even more unusual than that, it was outside. Who does a wedding in Alaska in the winter outside? Well, it turns out the bride and the groom are marine biologists. Kim, I've, I've journeyed with her. She's my daughter's age, ages, and uh, watched her go through, become a marine biologist. She met a marine biologist up in Alaska, Martin, they're gotten married now, and uh, their summer is incredibly busy, so they decided they needed to get married before the summer, before things really got ramped up and uh, out of control, and so they decided they wanted to do this in March, and they wanted to have it outside because this is a very special piece of land. Uh, Martin's father, who was a professor at the University of Alaska, had a hundred of acres of land up on a bluff overlooking the Homer Peninsula in the mountains. And he gave away 80 acres of it to the state of Alaska uh, on behalf of his wife, who passed away when Martin was only nine years old. So this little piece of land uh, had special meaning for Martin. And in fact, they kept a little bit of it, and they're planning to build a home on it someday. And it overlooked the mountains and the, the, the peninsula there in Homer. Very, very beautiful. I wish I was there in June. Rather than March, I must be honest, because it was pretty much a blizzard right up until the actual wedding itself, which was kind of incredible. Uh, The mystery for me was the date, March 10th. Just a few months ago, uh, the Celebrate Recovery national team came to Chapel Hill and asked if we would host a one-day event here. That's quite an honor. Uh, Folks from all over the Northwest, it was a regional event, so folks from Oregon, Washington, Idaho would be here, state representatives for Celebrate Recovery. Uh, But March 10th was the only date that they could do it, take it or leave it. And so we took it. But I was so sad that it was the same day that I was scheduled to go to Alaska and do this wedding. And as March 10th approached, I became increasingly resentful to the Lord about, Lord, why would you do this? Schedule these two important things on the same day. Here, I'm, I, after I'm, I'm the pastor over Celebrate Recovery, and I can't even come and enjoy this with, with my team, who's going to be working really hard to be host to all these people that are coming. We had almost 1,000 people here on March 10th. And then uh, Jenny and I uh, went to Homer, Alaska on a four-day stretch. And as it turns out, it was very strategic. We spent uh, four days in close proximity to uh, the bride's extended family who were from all over the United States. And uh, we actually had a five and a half hour drive together, 12 of us, in a stretch limo 
from Anchorage to Homer in a blizzard. And we were pulling a U-Haul. So we were very long, and we only had rear-wheel drive. And somehow, we didn't skid out of control or do any of that, but it took us five and a half hours. And I'll never forget one of the bride's aunts saying, as she got in, as she kind of crawled into the limo along with the rest of us, she's saying, oh, I get to sit across from the pastor the whole way. Love you too. Well, over four days, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to say that the family discovered that Past, not all pastors have two heads and breathe out fire of condemnation. I'm glad to say that. And in fact, uh, several of the family members actually kind of warmed up to us and came up to me toward the end of the time and talked a little bit about their own uh, issues with faith that they had, which I felt like just made the whole trip worthwhile. So that little small M mystery was solved. But today we're looking at Romans 11 where there's a big M mystery that Paul talks about. And you'll, I think you'll begin to see that as we get into this. Um, so you're going to need to fasten your pew belts as Pastor Mark would say and really listen up here. Because today you're enrolling in a little bit of Bible school. If you have any desire to go to Bible school, this is the kind of thing you talk about. So listen hard. I'm going to be reading from Romans 11, 25 through 32. Paul writes... Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery for others, a partial hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may know receive mercy now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all let's pray father in heaven we thank you for uh, Romans chapter 11 we thank you for your love for your people and we pray that you would bring clarity to a passage that has confounded your people for a long time so we ask Holy Spirit that you would give us uh, clarity today in Jesus name Amen. All right, so listen up. If that means for you to sit on the edge of your pew so you can stay awake, that's good. Do that. Does God care about the nation of Israel? Yes. Paul says emphatically in Romans 11, two verses in verse 1, and then again in verse 11. He says, has God rejected his people? Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Decisively, Paul shouts out, by no means. Of course not. God loves Israel. They are his chosen people. They're the people of the covenant. In verse 2, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul cites the example of his own life as an ethnic Jew, of how God revealed himself through Christ to him and made Paul aware that it's 
by grace through faith that people are saved. He also used the example here in Romans. He sought the example of, of Elijah, who thought he was all alone in Israel during a terrible time in the history of Israel. But God revealed to Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. Don't worry, there are 7,000 men here in, in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. Don't worry, my people are here. Throughout salvation history, we see that God has always preserved a remnant in Israel. In verse 14, Paul says, I magnify my ministry. Paul magnifies his own ministry? No, he, Paul never does that. He says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Remember back in Romans 9, just a couple weeks back, Mark talked about, uh, he read from Romans 9, he said, the heart, uh, Paul's heart was filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul was deeply burdened by the fact that the Jews were not responsive to Jesus and his message, and that they did not respond, basically, to eternal life. And he uses a vivid agricultural metaphor then to describe this whole era that we're in now. He says some of the branches of the tree have been broken off to make room for new branches. Those broken off branches represent the unregenerate people of Israel, those who have not been open to the message of salvation through Christ. In order to make room for the new branches... We're the new branches, the Gentiles, whom Paul calls a wild olive shoot. We've been grafted in among the others, and now we nourish on the same olive root. And what is that root? That root is the patriarchs of the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis, Genesis 12. In chapter 11 of Romans, Paul warns the Gentile believers there in Rome, not to be haughty about the fact that they are chosen and God seems to have forgotten Israel. In fact, he says to them, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, wait a minute. Some of you might be thinking, you Reformed theologians, what's Paul saying here? Is Paul saying that the elect can lose their salvation. That's not a reformed doctrine. <coughs> Wait a minute. Wait. Our text implies that we cannot presume upon God's grace and mercy. If God would prune and harden Israel, his beloved, then Gentiles are not exempt from being cut off themselves. I told you this is a challenging text. Dear Mark gave it to me two weeks ago. Believers cannot presume upon God's kindness. We cannot live, however, the way we want because we think we're the elect and we can live however. Some of the most sobering words in the New Testament come in the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father in, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and do miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Romans 11 actually affirms the doctrine of the persevering of the saints. Verse 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you Gentiles. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Believers are called and challenged here to continue in the grace and obedience to the end. All the way to the end. Hence the reformed doctrine on the persevering of the saints. God's purpose during this season is to bring in Gentiles into the kingdom. And they're coming in in mass. It's a mystery to us. Because at the same time, while literally millions of Gentiles are coming into the kingdom, there seems to be a hardening in the state of Israel. In fact, Paul says that in verse 25. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. My wife, Jennifer, was raised in a uh, small, eclectic little community up in Northern California, down in Northern California, um, in, in the Mendocino County. And uh, it was eclectic because back in the 70s, there was a, a movement of people, discontented urbanites from the San Francisco Bay Area and parts of California, who wanted to get away from the city and get back to the land to live a simpler lifestyle. Maybe some of you have heard of that sort of a actually historic uh, happening. Well, one of the couples that my wife's parents met were a couple by the name of uh, Leonard and Gay Garraway. They were uh, ethnic Jews, non-practicing Jews. And over a period of time in that little town, uh, they came to know the Lord. And they were very passionate about their faith in Christ, so passionate that they felt that God was calling them to emigrate to Israel and become Israeli citizens. So, th- so they changed their names. They changed their names to Noah and Gay Garraway, and they moved to Israel. Well, what do you think, what kind of response do you think they received in Israel? It wasn't so hot. Um, they moved into a little village, made, made life there with their small children, and began to share life with people and share the, the good news about Jesus. And pretty soon the officials in the community began to post signs around the town saying, watch out for these people and watch out for their message. They're trying to convert you to Christianity. And they use the method of love to try to convert people. (sighs) Such is the state of the heart of many in Israel today. In verse 26, Paul makes a statement that has, has had theologians over the centuries kind of tied them in knots. I'm going to read it with verse 25 to put it in context. He says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now what is Paul talking about here? What does he mean by the phrase, all Israel? Some people, some interpreters of the Bible, the, the reformers, early reformers, Calvin, Zwingli, and even modern theologians think that all Israel basically refers to the church. There's only been one way of salvation through salvation history, and that is faith in God. 
That means that the Old Testament prophecies about Israel find their fulfillment in the New Testament, which means that ethnic Israel and the nation of Israel, per se, don't really have a role to play. Jews and Gentiles are all on the same footing. We find uh, salvation through grace, uh, grace through faith in Christ. Another way of looking at this passage, this phrase of all Israel, refers to spiritual Israel. That within the nation of Israel itself, right now, there's a, there's a remnant. There's a spiritual remnant of people who truly believe in God, but not the whole of Israel. We kind of deduce that based on Romans 9, which says that there's an Israel within Israel. The idea that there's always been a remnant throughout salvation history. A third perspective on this is something called dispensationalism. And that teaches that there's a distinction between Israel, the nation of Israel, and the church. All those prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel have to come to bear still yet in Israel, the nation. And so dispensationalists would believe that there is a future for the nation of Israel. God has a very specific purpose for them as well as the church. So that's why people go to seminary and, and Bible school. They talk about those kind of things. My take on it is this. God is not whimsical. He's, he's, always, uh, he's al- never forgotten his promises to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. He says right here in Romans 20, 11, 29, he says, For God's gifts and call are irrevocable. If the Jews are not open at this time to the gospel, it's for the purpose of bringing more Gentiles into the kingdom. But it's for a season until the fullness of time has come when all the Gentiles have come in. Then all Israel will be saved. If Jews aren't open to the gospel at this time, it's for God's purpose. I believe that God is going to do a great stirring among the people of Israel. And I look to uh, Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the end times uh, based, on, based on that. Jesus says, The gospel of the kingdom must be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Right now, there is an unprecedented movement of the Holy Spirit throughout major parts of the world, including Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The gospel is being preached, and untold millions are coming into God's God's kingdom right now. Half of South Korea has become Christian since the Korean War. China reportedly has hundreds of millions of believers. We can say the same thing in Africa and in Latin America over the last 50 to 100 years, that so many have come into God's kingdom. And even in the last 30 or so years, as the gospel has been preached among the Muslims, there's... There have been thousands, there are literally hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming into the kingdom as well. Through dreams, through wars, through political upheaval. Well, it's clear that God's spirit is on the move worldwide preparing his church for the return of Christ. And I think it's only a matter of time before we're going to witness that same level of openness in Israel. Because God has an elect group of people there. God's Gifts and call are irrevocable. He has a plan for the elect in Israel. Now, you're here today on on Palm Sunday. Easter's coming. You're all thinking about who you're going to be inviting to church and the the gathering of your family and a wonderful Easter meal, probably. And maybe you're thinking, okay, pastor, 
this seemed a little far afield about Palm Sunday right now. I'm going to tell you why you should care about Israel. Namely, that Jesus cared about Israel. As Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Luke records these words. He says, he, Jesus wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus was articulating these thoughts even as he was entering Jerusalem and his supporters were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of those same supporters would be the ones only days later who would say, crucify him, crucify him, as the Romans and the Jews abused Jesus for no rightful cause. Jesus cared about the Jews He wept over their hardness of heart, just as the Apostle Paul wept over the hardness of heart of the Jews. Jesus cares about lost people, Jew or Gentile, just as we should care about lost people. You know, we get very busy with our lives. We're very proud of our busyness. I'm wondering, when was the last time any of us was sorrowful over a lost person? Or when was the last time any of us wept over a family member or a person we knew or a people group or a nation that did not know Christ? It's interesting, after the uh, Florida shootings, I found myself weeping for the millennial generation, you guys. Because I know, I know you feel that at school. You feel, even though Chapel Hill's got this robust youth program, this is not the way it is all over. So many of the millennials have not come into the kingdom. And it reminded me of something that, remember Chuck Colson, who's no longer with us? He wrote back in the 80s. I remember reading some editorial articles that he wrote. Prophetic articles saying, people, we must be in prayer for the baby boomers. Because most of the baby boomers were not going to school, going to church back in the 80s. And then the Spirit of God moved across our nation. And literally millions of baby boomers came pouring into the church in the 80s, in the 90s, 2000s, and beyond. And now, and now we need to be praying for their children, for our children. And I know for any of you in our audience today, if you have a a millennial who's not walking with the Lord, you grieve in your heart for them. So I want to pray a bold prayer for us today. I want to pray for God's heart for each one of us that we would care for lost people. We get really busy. We've got lots of great things going in our life. But there's a reality that there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to return and there's going to be a separation. And we want people that we all know to be with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray this morning that you would give us your heart for lost people. 
I confess, Lord, that sometimes I get lukewarm. I get really comfortable being in a beautiful, wonderful church like we have at Chapel Hill, living in an idyllic place like Gig Harbor. And I think life is just good and fine. Who could ask for more? But Lord, I I pray that you would stir us. Stir us, Lord, in our hearts to pray for lost people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And Father, give us courage and boldness to reach out to our neighbors and our friends, our family members. Boldness to endure their ridicule and their rejection, but to be faithful to your calling. And so, Father, I pray that we would see more new pre-Christians in our church next Sunday than ever before. And we ask for this in the name of Christ. Amen.